Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. A redacted copy of the FBI affidavit that was filed with the search warrant executed on Mar-a-Lago is released to the public. A lot of redactions, but definitely some bombshells to report. And instead of doing anything before the magistrate judge who signed that warrant, Trump filed a number of bizarre motions in a new case before a federal judge in the Southern District of Florida. He even did a midnight filing essentially on Friday night. It's a motion for judicial oversight that he filed on Monday, and he hasn't even served the motion yet. Now let's turn to Texas, where a Texas Trump appointed judge made a ruling that will prevent women from getting life-saving medical care in emergency rooms where the standard of care would require an abortion. Meanwhile, the Department of Justice got a key win in federal court in Idaho, where women were permitted to get emergency care if they needed it under federal law, MTALA. Then we turn to Georgia, where Governor Kemp is trying to quash a subpoena for him to testify before the grand jury, basically saying he's too important to testify. And after the Court of Appeals, uh, the 11th Circuit directed the district court to ask Lindsey Graham what specific topics he was claiming he was immune from answering under the speech and debate clause. Lindy's, Lindsey Graham's response, everything, everything. Don't ask me any questions. Then let's talk about the DOJ release of this memo relating to Bill Barr's decision not to prosecute Trump. The most consequential legal news, explosive legal news this week. And really, Popak, the question right now is not if Donald Trump will be indicted, but when he will be indicted. This is Legal AF, Michael Popak and Ben Micellis. Michael, how are you doing this week? I'm doing great. I'm going to rename this episode, The Wheels of Justice Turn Slow, but Exceedingly Fine. And Donald Trump is under a massive wheel of justice that is just grinding him and pulverizing him at every turn, whether it's uh, the things going on in Florida and the federal judge, Fawny Willis in Fulton County, or anywhere else. We're going to talk about it all today. But for those that have been loyal listeners and followers of this show, it should come as no surprise what's happening and that it's happening at this particular moment in time as we turn to the fall. Popak, you're right. I mean, we've been telling everybody, and one of the benefits of listening to Legal AF, not just one episode, but following it through, is that all of these developments have been percolating for quite some time. Um, you know, the even this development of the search at Mar-a-Lago, you and I have been talking about it in January when the 15 boxes were taken in January of 2022 was one of the things we featured here on Legal F. We Legal AF. We talked about how that was a violation. There could be a referral to the DOJ. Um, obviously, the DOJ was tight lipped on their investigation until the search warrant was ultimately executed uh, on August 8th. But we now know from seeing the affidavit and the portions that were released that the DOJ, the FBI really gave Trump every shot in the world 
um, to try to return these records. And Donald Trump's not just holding on to these confidential, top secret, sensitive, departmented information because he likes it. Right. Like, I think that's what's sometimes missing in their reporting. He's not holding it on because he wants to just frame it like this information is national defense information. That's what's clear as we read this information. This is the type of stuff that gets spies killed, that gets Americans abroad killed. This is some of the most top sensitive information, so much so that you have to view the information in sensitive compartmented information facilities called SCIFs. And you can't just, you know, where there's no broadband or Wi-Fi because the uh, foreign our foreign enemies are literally paying billions of dollars to try to access um, this information, which as we read the warrant that was released in the portions that were unredacted, um, we see that this was like in in random rooms in Pine Hall um, when Donald Trump finally gave back the 15 boxes, not because he wanted to, not because he was not because he was caught with records that he wasn't supposed to have. They found all these documents intermingled that were top secret national secret information, and they were horrified. And they made the NARA, the National Archives, made the recommendation and referral to the DOJ. So what happened, Popak? So the affidavit in support of the search warrant under Rule 41, Federal Rule uh, Criminal Procedure 41, which sets forth the procedures for getting a warrant. Remember, there are three documents. There's the affidavit, which is the declaration of usually an FBI agent who states why there's probable cause. The second document is the warrant. The warrant sets forth the areas to be searched and the specific crimes for which there is probable cause. And then there is the return and the return lists the documents that were obtained in connection with the search. And the return is given to the lawyers or the person who's had their premises or or, or whatever searched or their uh, phone searched or whatever it is. And so we already had the search warrant. And we have already seen the return. Um, and now the issue is over the affidavit. Um, now, who are the individuals requesting that the affidavit to be unsealed? Well, you would think it would be Donald Trump because he was whining about it on his social media platforms. Unseal it, release it to the public. Well, Donald Trump never filed any motions at all. Zero, zip, zilch, no pleadings before Magistrate Judge Reinhardt asking that these documents be unsealed. The only people who ask for the documents to be unsealed, who do this in every case of a high-profile nature, was the media. And so what ended up happening was because the media requested that Judge Reinhardt unseal the affidavit because it had this public purpose, the government had to respond and the government had to say, look, there we can't reveal a lot of this information. I want to let people know. It's very rare, very rare that the affidavit is released at all. You go back to the Rudy Giuliani search warrant case in 2021. He asked that the affidavit be released there. The New York federal judge Oatkin said, nope, I'm not releasing the affidavit. We don't release affidavits pre-indictment. But because here was a former president, the public interest was so high. Magistrate Judge Reinhardt last week basically said, look, I want you to go back, government, redact the portions that you think are confidential and release the rest to the public, which the government did. The government made redactions. Judge Reinhardt granted in full what the government requested be redacted. 
The government sought to redact, make confidential sources and methods, confidential informants, citizen witnesses, um, other information that would be subject to grand jury, what's called Rule 6E, uh, pre-indictment grand jury information, standard stuff that would always remain confidential. Trump didn't challenge that in any way. Um, the judge granted what the uh, uh, department requested, and then we got the affidavit. And so, Popak, now that we've seen the affidavit on Friday, um, we know that there were uh, a number, a number of bombshells in there. But you want to break down what was most what you found to be most interesting, most informative um, and why this is going to make Trump be indicted. Yeah, we have a fourth document that got filed. Along with the redactions, the Department of Justice and its counterintelligence senior attorney um, who actually went to Mar-a-Lago uh, to look at documents as early as January and signed what they're calling an ex parte, ex parte memo that accompanied the redaction to explain, not to the judge, I don't think, but to explain to the world what happened and the crimes that are likely to have been committed gave me a lot of detail, gave you a lot of detail that we're going to share now about the nature of the investigation and what was in the boxes and why the Department of Justice made the momentous decision, historical decision to execute a search warrant on what they refer to as the former president of the United States. I know Donald Trump likes to call himself the president of the United States, but they referred to him as F POTUS in all of their filings. What I learned was the following. One, the primary focus of the investigation, putting aside the sexy title of the Espionage Act, is obstruction. And the obstruction, which you and I and other legal commentators were guessing about two weeks ago, about, well, which, which, which obstruction are we talking about? Are we talking about obstruction about an investigation not related to these documents, or are we talking about obstruction related to these documents? And it's clear from the filing made by the Department of Justice, along with the redacted black affidavit is that the focus is on obstruction by Donald Trump himself and those around him related to these national defense documents. Let me be clear. I don't think we've ever been anything but clear on this podcast. Donald Trump potentially compromised the most sensitive national security information and the national security of this country by taking and retaining two dozen boxes containing almost a thousand top secret classified documents and information, including, and not to put too fine a point on this, including documents, as you said, that get people killed and are the result of clandestine operations and the result of the application of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, an act from the 1980s that a judge oversees. They already determined from the first batch of documents that Trump decided to have pulled from his grip, not even voluntarily in the first wave, that there were special intelligence SI in the box. There was human clandestine source information, what they call HCS. There was no foreign, N-O-F-O-R-N, meaning not to be released 
to a foreign national and other information that it was created by the spy community, human intelligence, human assets around the world that Trump decided to take for whatever reason. And when they saw in their in their first wave of documents that he finally returned in January, the existence of all of these commingled documents that were unfolded, unclassified, mixed with other papers, this scared the crap out of the Department of Justice and the National Archive. So you have two obstruction charges that are potential that are being revealed in the affidavit and the supporting material along with the affidavit. One of, them is, one of them is obstructing the National Archive in their federally protected work and required work and the Department of Justice, who gave Trump 15 months to get the documents back. This is where criminal intent. So I know Karen and I had a little bit of a debate on the Wednesday show about criminal intent. And I know her focus was, well, it, it's always difficult to prove intent. I don't think so in this case, because the Department of Justice shot, you know, gave him a warning shot 15 months ago and said, return all of the documents that you have that we consider to be national defense or classified or otherwise. And he spoon fed them and then even had one of his attorneys in the meeting with the counterintelligence Department of Justice official who certified that everything that was, quote unquote, classified or national defense had been returned, which we know now is a lie. But Trump, having been put on notice directly by the Department of Justice, the National Archive and the FBI, that these documents needed to be immediately returned and having retained them. That is part of the criminal case. The other aspect that was interesting then from what's now been revealed in the affidavit, even under all the black lines, you know, all, all the things that were revealed is the extent of the level of civilian witnesses unnamed that are cooperating with the Department of Justice concerning the the improper, illegal document retention by Donald Trump. And it's not one because the phrases, the adjectives used are multiple, the voluminous amounts of civil civilian witnesses, right? Witnesses that are outside the government that are cooperating with the government that can, of course, cannot be named for fear of threat or intimidation by this president and all those around him. So, I learned that obstruction is really the focus. That's the obstruction related to the actual document retention and proper document retention by Donald Trump and those around him that they're talking about nuclear secrets being in the box and the highest level of human clandestine intelligence that, as you so eloquently put it, gets people killed if revealed. And the thing that was the go moment for the government to go to the special to the uh, to the uh, magistrate judge to get the search warrant was the holy shit moment, if you will, is when they went through the boxes and realized that that had all of this intelligence in the first batch of 15. And then they pulled. And for whatever reason, the Trump organization voluntarily pursuant to a subpoena without fighting it, turned over the surveillance video for the cameras out in front of these various locations, the, the Pine Lounge, which is some hallway leading to the bedrooms of Mar-a-Lago for Melania and Donald, the Office of 45 or whatever that is in, in Mar-a-Lago. I guess that's where he stores all his crap, the basement, the basement doors. And when they got the surveillance videos, they, they, they understood that not only was Trump illegally retaining these material, but he wasn't even protecting them. People, all sorts of people before and after scheduled meetings with the government were going in and out of the rooms. Now it's time. Now that's the go period to go to the to the federal judge and convince them, which they did. Now, having filed all of that, there's a time clock that our followers and listeners to be sensitive to. 
The Department of Justice is, as we speak, and for the last two weeks, reviewing these 11 categories of documents. I have Trump, no doubt, Popak, they reviewed every document. Oh, it's done. It's done. It was done that, it was done that <laughs> I, weekend. By day three, they reviewed right. every document. Uh, the three-day weekend, they were done. They know exactly what's inside. So now you have Johnny come lately, F. POTUS come lately, and his illustrious legal team, who file not an emergency motion to stop anything, which is what you know, Karen and I talked about on Wednesday. Like, what did you even file? Not an emergency motion to get the judge to put a halt to the continued review of the documents by, by the Department of Justice, but this kind of you know lackadaisical, haphazard, poorly researched, so poorly researched and, and poorly argued motion that the judge looked at them in the first hearing and said, I don't even know what you want me to do. What are you asking for? And how does this relate to Judge Reinhardt, Magistrate Judge Reinhardt and what he's doing? What do you want? Why are you here in my courtroom? Always a bad sign for an advocate when a judge says, I don't know what you want from me. And why don't you rebrief it? And as you said earlier at the top of the podcast, they they submitted 12 total pages, which is in the world of briefs is pretty brief. And in the 12 pages, which you and I have read and we'll put up on the screen and have it available, all they said was, we need a special master. And there's been special masters before. And Rudy Giuliani had a special master about of all his documents. And you have the power to do it. And we can't ask Judge Reinhardt for it. And um, but in there, this is the most devastating thing, because once again, they 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 wrap themselves around their own axle. Ben, did you see in the motion where they they are starting to assert that Trump had the right under privilege, attorney client privilege or otherwise to keep the documents. How is that not an admission that Trump knows the documents that he took with him, which is the crime that's being prosecuted in nowhere in any of Trump's filings? Does he say the following? I didn't have top secret sensitive compartmented information. I'm innocent. Okay, they don't say that. You know what they're beginning to argue is that the Presidential Records Act, because his lawyers are just horrible, and they've argued this on TV too. The Presidential Records Act has no criminal penalties at all. A president can do anything a president wants to do, commit any crime, <sighs> and they like cite Nixon. Um, but Popak, when I see the lawyers for Trump go on and they say the Presidential Records Act has no criminal penalties, I'm like, just all you have to do, there's a lot of redactions in the affidavit that was released on Friday. But what was not redacted, one of them was statutory authority and definitions. And it lists what the crimes are. <laughs> 18 U.S.C. 793E, whoever having an authorized possession of access to or control over any document or information relating to the national defense, which information the possessor has reason to believe could cause could be used to cause injury to the United States or to the advantage of any foreign nation willfully communicates, delivers, transmits, or causes to be communicated, deliver or transmitted, or attempts to do or causes the same to any person not entitled to receive it or willfully retains the same and fails to deliver it (laughs) to the officer or employee of the United States entitled to receive it. 793E, that's the Espionage Act right there. What other laws are at play here? 
USC 1519. That's that's obstruction. the big one. But don't leave. Don't leave that one. So I think that's the key to this prosecution. No, no, I'm saying I don't want to bury it in the other three. I think based on the new if you ask me, what's what's your takeaway, Popak? The takeaway is I think the focus of the investigation is 1519, which is a 20 year penalty does not require any kind of classification or top secret and deals with obstruction. It was passed under the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. Um, it's it's worse for him and easier to prove for the government. That's the point. The reason I think that is the key in the heart of the prosecution and the other two that you cited, while important, just defeat or deflate his argument about you know, they're, they're really good at anticipating the next move in a chess game. Unlike these idiots who are barely playing checkers without throwing the board over the lawyers for the Department of Justice anticipating that Trump would try to say, because in conversations with him and his lawyers for 15 months, they heard the arguments already about magical wand making things unclassified. He took work home, whatever they said to they killed it with the two other prosecutions about what you said, Espionage Act and the unlawful retention of national defense documents that removes classi classified versus not classified from the entire investigation. But the heart, the thing I think they get that they get them on quickly with a 20 year penalty, unlike the misdemeanors of past, you know, mishandling of top secret information is this obstruction charge that you're about I agree to talk with about. you, but I slightly yeah. disagree with you. But right. I, you're, you're right. But <laughs> let, let me explain to you where my disagreement is. You know, obstructions always used by the government in situations where criminals are trying to hide their criminal conduct. And so, of course, obstruction is the is the focus at this stage because Trump has been obstructing up until this point. And we know he's obstructing by reading the unsealed portions of the affidavit that was released on Friday because it, it lists what happened. It talks about how after Trump left the office, trucks came in, they took the boxes, U-Hauls, they shipped the boxes to Mar-a-Lago. The National Archives go, hey, we're missing like top secrets. So they reach out to Trump in May of 2021. Finally, after all this effort to get it back, they basically get Trump to ship back 15 boxes. There's all of this kind of dispute between uh, January and like April and May of 2022. Yeah, and June. And, and June. Because one of the things that Trump is arguing also there is executive privilege over these documents. And then NARA finally gets a legal opinion and goes, these are not executive privilege documents. First off, Biden has holds executive privilege. You don't. And these are national security. They don't belong to you. You can't just say executive privilege documents are our most top secret documents. But here's and you're conceding, too, but you're conceding that you have them if you're saying executive privilege. But here's the thing. Trump could have filed in May of 2022 an injunction or That's challenged right. executive privilege in court. He didn't file anything in May of 2022. That's how arrogant and cocky and just, you know, criminally minded he is. And then you go from the May of 2022 to June where the top counterintelligence official uh, shows up. Jay Bratt shows up. He's assured that they've returned the documents. Um, Jay Bratt says, well, Put us, you know, put a lock, whatever that room is, lock it, secure it, number one, while we continue our investigation. But they told Brat that they've given all the documents back in uh, June of 2022, which we know not to be the case now that the government's we've seen the return of the warrant 
and the return of the warrant shows that there was top secret sensitive compartmented information obtained. So we obstruction is the focus to the extent that that timeline that I just gave shows the obstruction and the lies and the deceit. And it's a no brainer. We it's, it's almost stipulated liability at this point based on the time frame that I gave. But the other statutes that I gave Popak Espionage Act and the other one, 18 U.S.C. 2071, which is willfully and unlawfully concealing, removing, mutilating or obliterating and destroying those right. documents. That statute, though, those come into play now, particularly in focus because the government's got the documents back. Yeah. Um, and then and then there is a footnote here, though, in this uh, in the affidavit as well, that does talk to the point that classification for all those crimes we listed is not an element of it. Notice I didn't say classification once. It's stealing national defense information Absolutely. that doesn't belong to you and not returning it. And then to put a finer point, Popak, what you said about what Donald Trump filed, Donald Trump did not file anything before the magistrate who's hearing these issues relating to the search warrant, the magistrate judge who signed the search warrant. That's Judge Reinhardt. Instead, earlier this week on Monday, Trump filed a new lawsuit, a new case before Judge Eileen Cannon, who is a Trump appointee, appointed by Trump in 2020, Federalist Society since 2005, but still a judge like Eileen Cannon has like, yeah. hopefully has dignity and respect, who's like, I'm not going to just let people just file whatever freaking documents they want to file in my court. But there... Two weeks late, after the government's reviewed it, Trump says, hey, can you provide a special master? And for those asking, what's a special master? We talk about a lot in legal AF. It's just an independent retired judge or a uh, or a retired lawyer or, or a practicing lawyer who just reviews the documents and prepares reports for the court and says these are privileged. These are not privileged. But Trump did that. Like it's basically a moot point at this. And then when you read the most recent filing that Trump made, because the judge, as you mentioned in that other case, said, am I even entitled to hear this? Like, why aren't you <laughs> filing it in the court before Judge Reinhardt? Because all Trump would have to do before Judge Reinhardt, if he wanted a special master, is just ask for it there. Right. And right away, the day the search warrants executed, what your lawyer would do is go into court and say to Judge Reinhardt, hey. Can we please get a special master on this? While, while, it's been, while, it's, while the nine, if you and I had the case, <laughs> we would never take this case. During the nine hours of the search, we would have already been an emergency application to the yeah. court in the Southern District of Florida, arguing about quashing it, you know, doing everything that he did two weeks later. OK, in the wrong court with the wrong judge, with a judge that is even questioning her own jurisdiction over the issue, as you pointed out. But look, you and I, just to bring it back home, when we talked about this two weeks ago, I said, and you, you said that Trump asking to have this thing released was all bullshit, that he knew that if this ever got released in any kind of unredacted form, it would be terrible for him. And just look at the media reports, mainstream or otherwise, since, yes, since two days ago, since the unredacted, mostly unredacted affidavit was released, it has been terrible for Trump. Terrible. There's not a legal commentator worth his salt. Former Justice Department, former DOJ, former FBI, who hasn't said that that he that Trump is in mortal peril because of the affidavits release and what it indicates about the scope and uh, muscularity of the prosecution. He never wanted that released. 
and and to say to have him say in his papers, ah, the re- the released blackened redacted affidavit and makes more questions than it answers. I mean, I mean and then they cite, and here's the thing. They, they, they then cite the Rudy Giuliani search warrant case. Right. And guess what? If you just picked up and read that case, which I did right after, because I'm like, <laughs> that doesn't sound right to me. We and covered sure that. enough. The judge we talked about it here. Yeah. <laughs> but the federal judge in New York, when Rudy Giuliani said release the affidavit, the judge didn't even release like redacted and unredacted portions like mm-hmm, like Judge Reinhardt did. There, the judge said, you don't get a copy of the affidavit, you know, you know, go away. And in the Giuliani case. It was a whole set of different issues. The government had asked for the special master, not Giuliani. Giuliani said, give me all the documents back, which the court (laughs) denied. And there where there's an attorney client privilege claim, there is usually the standard protocol would either be um, like a taint team that reviews the records before or you have a special master because it involved a lawyer. And here in this case with Trump, there is no Trump hasn't even argued when you look at the motion or whatever he filed, there's no claim of attorney-client privilege. He just randomly says privilege. And here's the thing, too. The motion that Trump filed, he's like, yeah, let's call this an injunction. You can't do that. Like, you have to file a <laughs> you have to file a motion. It's a motion. You have to file an emergency with prong, motion. With, prong, with prongs, with elements. You have to establish irreparable harm. You have to establish <laughs> a, a probability of success on the merits. You have to show the immediacy of the harm with declarations, right. like the way there's an affidavit that goes with a search warrant. You can't just oh, go you, willy-nilly. Hey, you, I'd like an injunction today. I'd like an injunction today, Court. And, and maybe uh, maybe a little special master. How about a little special master judge? So well, I think he's going to get laughed at of court there. I just think the judge yeah. is going to deny it and uh, say, I don't have jurisdiction. Uh, I think Judge Reinhardt did. But we, we don't know. It's a Trump appointee is the one thing I want to talk about. I want to about. talk. I want to talk about that. Give my Florida perspective. And I, this is sort of a nuanced perspective, because a lot of times, and including on this podcast today, we're going to talk about Trump appointees and non-Trump appointees as ha- as shorthand for how we think the ruling is going to come out. That doesn't often work in Miami. Those that are um, there's a lot of Hispanic um, uh, justices, judges who get appointed, as most people know, Miami in particular is is 70 percent Hispanic. Many of them are, you know, and I practice down there and I have friends in the judiciary, um, some of which I supported, some of which I didn't when they ran for office. But usually if they're a Republican, they're, they're just members of the Federalist Society. They're not overly political in in Miami the way they are in other places around the country. In Texas, if I, you and I tell somebody that's a Trump appoint, appointee, we sort of know how the ruling is going to come out. That doesn't often work in Miami and in South Florida because of the other cross you know, issues related to ethnicity and and uh, and uh, being Hispanic or not Hispanic and all of that. So it, I right now she's been making some good rulings and she's running a very tight ship. And I'm not sure whether she, who she was appointed by is going to matter if she laughs them out of court. Well, here's because here's the problem. If she gives Trump the relief, um, everybody's watching those dockets. Right. We're all watching yeah. that. And so if you could just show up in her court and basically write a love letter, and and have the letter be treated as a motion uh, and and then a judge says okay looks like you wrote me a poem and based on that poem i'm going to give you the relief that you request don't you think that everyone's going to be citing hey i guess i guess when we file for injunctions we don't need declarations (laughs) in your court anymore like it would create a free-for-all situation in her court where it would just look like 
there are no rules. There are right. no and and everybody would take advantage of the system if that was the case. And as as Trump's trying to do there, but yeah, that motion's not going anywhere. And so, really, what happens next, Hopak? Here is that you know the government's conducting its investigation. Oh, one more thing I wanted to mention though <laughs> about Trump's motion for judicial oversight. Again, a, a made up title for a motion that uh, it doesn't really exist. He hasn't served the documents. I mentioned this at the top of the show. And so when they filed the motion on last Monday, what they did is rather than serving the Southern District of Florida's uh, person who accepts service, right? Everyone you see in the movies where there's the process server who goes in and has to serve it. Well, the rules require service occur in, in, in certain ways. You can't just email. If I had a case against a big corporation, for example, right? I can't just email a lawsuit that I file to like some random executive VP at the company and go, you've been served because I emailed it to you. That's what Trump's legal team did. They basically took the document after they filed it. They didn't serve it on the government the way it's supposed to be. Instead, they emailed it to Jay Pratt, who's the top counterintelligence official, um, and said, here you go. Uh, here's the document. And Jay Pratt like didn't respond to it because he's like, what the hell are you? I'm not that guy. I don't I don't do that. <laughs> Why are you sending this to me? So he didn't respond. And then on the 25th, the Trump uh, lawyers call Jay Pratt and go, hey, so are you going to accept service? They don't even call him the day they send it to him. And then Jay Pratt's like. No. That's not what I do. Just serve who you're supposed to serve if you're filing. And I'm I'm not the person who gets served with these documents. And right. so then the government had to admit. Did you see that Popak at yeah, the yeah. very bottom? That, not that the government. Trump had to admit at the very bottom of the document. They go, we will promptly serve. We will promptly uh, effectuate service. How do you not serve the people that you're uh, suing? There, and how do you email? They, they don't to, know how to lawyer. The worst lawyers ever. To To be clear. People that practice in this arena regularly know how to serve the government. There is a defined way that you serve the government. It's not hard. You know where to find them. You just have to send the process server to the right door and you serve the, you serve the government. You don't serve the agent or the Department of Justice representative who signed the paper. You know, you have to officially serve the United States of America, but there's a way to do it and it's not that hard. So the fact that they spent three out of their 12 pages complaining and crying to the judge about they couldn't figure out service. You know, this is what look, if you remember at the very beginning of this motion practice, the two lawyers that are supposedly the brains in the operation, the one sitting in Maryland and the other one, Corcoran and the other one, they couldn't even argue the first day in court because the judge rejected that she's now approved it, rejected their motion for special appearance to appear in Florida because they don't practice in Florida because their papers were all screwed up. Yeah, Leaving, it's like, it's, to give people what that means, like, you know, on the SATs, yeah. you get a certain amount of points for just writing your name. <laughs> um, these lawyers failed to write their name correctly in right. the court so they couldn't even appear, which is even more dangerous because what that left on that first day of really important argument was one of the television talking head lawyers that he hires. You know, he's got these bunch that have spent most of their career on Newsmax and Fox and are quickly finding out that arguments that play really well to the viewers on one of these right wing channels does terribly in a court of law. See Sidney Powell. But that's what they were left with. They were left with this person this female attorney who had Christina really, Bob, yeah. Christina Bob, who had like no experience. No, the other one. There's another one in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, who practices for who practices landlord tenant 
law when she's not representing a former president of the United States. She was the only one that yeah. was allowed yeah, to speak yeah, yeah. in court. Right. Crow totally. Cr- this shows and that's you- where Laura Ingraham goes. Your lawyers. I know you're <laughs> telling me that you want to unseal the affidavit, but but your lawyers didn't say anything in court. So what is it that you are actually doing? But we will keep everybody apprised of the developments there. And I do want to turn right now, though, to um, we mentioned we're going to talk about, you know, Trump appointed judges, judges appointed by uh, Democrats who followed democracy. Um, and this is, you know, really disturbing ruling out of Texas District Court. Um, let me rewind a little bit and give you some background of of the law and the issues at stake. So obviously, everybody knows that Roe v. Wade was overturned in the Dobbs decision. States like Texas have enacted total abortion bans with no exceptions in cases of rape or incest and you know, other states have raced to kind of come down to the most radical right states with the most extreme versions of these abortion bans. And we, we just see them all over the country in these Republican states just totally taking away a woman's right to choose. Well, um, one of the things that Biden did in his executive order is he told emergency room doctors that under a federal law called EMTALA, the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, a law that was passed in 1986, That law says if somebody shows up to an emergency room and needs life-saving treatment, an emergency room can't turn that person away. I mean, how horrific was it that before 1986, emergency rooms could turn people away? People could literally die uh, if they didn't have insurance or, you know, uh, the emergency rooms could just turn them away. So under EMTALA, uh, which is a federal law, the Biden administration through the Department of Health and Human Services, the HHS, sent a letter to these emergency rooms and said, even if states have total abortion bans or abortion bans, if a woman comes into the hospital and needs life-saving treatment and the standard of care requires an abortion, you, you need to provide the standard of care. You need to use your medical judgment to save the woman's life and not let the woman die. We just want to make you we want to make you clear about that. We hope you're clear about that if you're not. You can't let women die who show up to the emergency room, right? You would think that that's not a controversial position. Let's not let women die who show up to medical rooms and let doctors use their their standard of care. Well, that's not the case. Um, so the state of Texas, Ken Paxton, their AG, sued the Biden administration for giving that guidance. And they said under Texas state law, under our total abortion ban, you can't tell us at all what what whether women should live or die who show up at the emergency room you can't give that guidance at all to emergency room doctors and so uh there was a lawsuit filed by texas against the biden administration they pulled a trump appointed judge judge uh james wesley Hendricks, and judge wesley Hendricks agreed and judge wesley Hendricks said that the guidance given that that's what it is it's not like a law it's guidance saying we're striking down that guidance that's given. Doctors do not follow that guidance because the guidance focused on the doctor's medical judgment and it didn't balance the medical judgment against the state law, which prevents the doctor from exercising the medical judgment. That's what Hendrick said was wrong with the guidance, which is a complete upside down world version to borrow that phrase from another federal judge, um, one out in Florida who's been ruling 
pro-democracy rulings, a uh, Obama appointee, I believe. Um, it totally changes the dynamic of the supremacy clause, which means that what the federal government law, like EMTALA, supersedes state law, um, and in this case, provide emergency treatment is a federal law. So that's what happened out in Texas. Um, and that, of course, is going to be appealed by the Biden administration. That's going to go to the Fifth Circuit. Um, but the Fifth Circuit is a very radical right wing court. So I don't expect there to be any action there. You compare that to what happened in before Idaho. Be, before you be, let me comment on Texas before you move to Idaho. And we, we, we set up the split in the circuits or the eventual split in the circuits. Very interesting fact about this judge, because as we said earlier, sometimes you can use who appointed them as a predictor of outcome. This one's weird. So Judge Hendricks was actually originally appointed by Obama. He was going to be a federal judge under Obama, but it got blocked. And because of recesses in the ledge in, in Congress, he never got his federal seat, his federal uh, judgeship under Obama. He then when Trump came in, he chose Hendricks, which Obama had already selected to be his judge. And the guy got confirmed 98 to one by the Senate. It looked almost bipartisan because Obama had already appointed him. I just put that out there because sometimes politics make strange bedfellows and not everybody. You can't predict what their outcome. He's obviously acting like a Trump appointment now in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, where this decision came out. So, you know, I. We're going to set up now. You're going to talk about Idaho next. It's going to set up this conflict over these series of executive orders, guidance and and uh, policies that uh, Biden and his cabinet came up with in the wake of the Dobbs decision about what Democrats and people that love democracy and a woman's right to choose can do in the short term and in the long term to um, uh, try to ameliorate the harsh of ruling of taking away a constitutional right of a woman to choose. This is but one example, as you've outlined, the HHS guidance about what hospitals can do in an emergency if they determine from a medical necessity the woman needs an abortion. Supremacy clause, the the paramount power of the federal law and federal government over state over issues in which they have taken complete um, they've ousted the states is going to be implicated. And this battle between and we're going to hear about it more when you talk about Idaho, which criminalizes all abortion, no matter what the cause and the life of the mother be damned, what that's going to do with a, a Supreme Court that if they thought the U.S. Supreme Court, if they thought they weren't going to have to make another abortion ruling for a long, long time, is exactly the opposite. They're going to get another abortion case this upcoming term that you and I'll start talking about when it opens in October. And it's probably going to be Texas versus Idaho after you talk about Idaho. Yeah. And we could talk about the strategy. You'd say, well, there's a lot of total abortion bans uh, in these radical right states. So why was it that of all of the states out there that the Department of Justice decided to file their first federal lawsuit against the total abortion ban as it relates to the provision of emergency medical treatment um, at hospitals and ER rooms. Why did they choose Idaho of all places? Well, even though Idaho is run by a Republican governor, it's actually in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. I always forget um, that. I always right. forget that. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm serious. Cal, I, when I think Ninth Circuit, I think where you sit. I think California and some of the Western states. I forget Idaho 
which is right wing, as you're about to identify, sits in a relatively liberal appellate circuit. Exactly. And so it's the Ninth Circuit you could think of as the exact opposite of the Fifth Circuit. And so even if the Biden administration had filed their version of the Mtala lawsuit in Texas, what they realize is it would go on appeal to the Fifth Circuit, who would strike it down likely. And so the effort would probably fail anyway, you know, be just because of the uh, the dynamic there. Um, so Idaho, as you mentioned, Popak has a essentially a total abortion ban, criminalizes it, which means that it has this chilling effect on emergency room doctors who don't know what they're supposed to do, where are they going to get arrested if they provide emergency care? And the answer is likely yes, but they don't know. But it seems like they'd get arrested um, and then the burden would shift to them after there was a criminal trial to try to come up with some sort of you know, defense to, to justify it. But that would be in the context of they've been arrested and now they're criminally charged. So the Biden administration and the Department of Justice, just think about the DOJ. Just think about the work that Merrick Garland is doing, though, right? Like at the same time, Merrick Garland and the DOJ is prosecuting insurrectionists like 800 active cases or 400 of those have been resolved and 400 more will be resolved. At the same time, they're doing that. At the same time, you know, there's the search warrant that's executed on Mar-a-Lago. Um, you know, the Department of Justice is, is standing up at oh, the same time. The Department of Justice is filing criminal charges in the Breonna Taylor case. The Department of Justice is here fighting in Idaho for a woman's right to choose and for that right as expansive as it can be under the limitations provided by the radical right extremist court to make sure women who show up at the emergency room won't die. So this lawsuit was filed in Idaho by the Department of Justice, and the lawsuit was against the state of Idaho. And the DOJ basically said, Idaho, you're under the supremacy clause, your law, your state law, your abortion ban, as it relates to emergency room medical providers, is in conflict with EMTALA, the Emergency Treatment and Labor Act, and EMTALA, the supremacy clause, that prevails. So as your law relates to emergency situations, we're going to strike, we want the court to strike that down, and we want the court to enjoin or stop you from enforcing that. Let doctors provide medical treatment. And there, the judge, U.S. District Judge B. Lynn Windmill, who was a Clinton appointee, um, Judge Windmill, granted the injunction um, by the DOJ, meaning women who show up at the emergency room who would otherwise die can be treated by uh, doctors. I want to get your take on it, Popak, yeah. but I just want to reflect just for a moment just how disgusting and radical extreme these right-wing Republicans are at, at, at this stage. I mean, it's just it's not enough that Roe v. Wade was overturned, right? It's always even more, which is extreme and horrific. They want it so that women who show up at the emergency room who will die if they don't get the treatment will die. That's what they're, and they're fighting to sue to make sure that women who show up die. Horrible. But I do a, I do a, um, an analysis much, much the way you just laid out on uh, this past Wednesday's podcast with Karen on this on abortion. We were talking about another couple of cases. And I, I said, I'll say it again, there's a special cruelty that goes along with the right wing of the Republican Party about not caring at all about women 
not caring at all, including those that are in distress, those that have been raped, those that have medical conditions that require them to abort. Um, there's a special cruelty to say things like Ken Paxton, the attorney general of Texas, after they won their Texas case. I'm not, you know, winning is losing for me from a moral standpoint, but they won their Texas case. And he said in a tweet, because that's all they can do. Great day for Texas babies, women and healthcare professionals. It's a terrible day for women. We're not talking about babies. We're talking about fetuses. Um, but this is this is that special brand of cruelty where Republicans will leave women to their own devices to have to raise children ultimately that they would rather through a choice not do. And then it's going to be the Democrats and their social need programs that are going to have to step in to help raise these children and make sure they're not in harm's way. And and it's it really is disgusting. And the more we talk about it, let's talk about Idaho for a minute, because that victory there is sort of temporary. We don't quite know how this judge and I love I love her name. It's not it's win W.I.N.M.I.L.L., but it sounds like windmill. And Judge Windmill said for now, under we're back to an injunction setting. I, I think we can wait. I don't see the irreparable harm. I think we can wait to have full adjudication on the issue of whether the supremacy clause and federal law and the Dobbs ruling comes into play in analyzing whether Idaho's total and complete criminalization of abortion is going to is going to be able to withstand the application of EMTALA, the federal law. I don't know what a ruling is going to be. I'm hoping I know what a ruling is going to be, given the fact of who who appointed her and, and where her sentiment seems to lie. But we don't know yet. We have a clear ruling in Texas that's subject to appeal here. I'm sure there'll be an appeal related to it. And we're going to have been it may not be in October, but there's going to be a caucus and a conference among the Supreme Court now with with uh, uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson sitting in her seat rightfully about these cases. This will not be the only case where there'll be a, a, a split in the circuits about abortion because states, legislatures and hospitals are making all sorts of bizarre decisions about women and their right to choose or their failure to have a right to choose. And that's leading to tremendous um, uh, emotional, moral, physical impact on women. You've got hospital administrators trying to read statutes and Supreme Court decisions and law and getting it wrong. And and, and who's suffering? The woman. And this is going to have to come back. If Sam Alito thought when he wrote Dobbs that what happens in the real world is of no concern to us, good luck, because you're going to get at least a half a dozen cases involving abortion and what people are supposed to do with your decision in the next term. And that's the way you framed it there is perfect too. your decision, the state's decision. And would you refer to as, you know, these bizarre decisions and bizarre outcomes or these cruel, horrific outcomes are state imposed decisions, not the woman's decision, right. not the woman's decision with her family and her doctor. It is the state's decision. It is people like Greg Abbott. It is people like DeSantis. It is people like Ted Cruz, right? It is these types of people who are the ones who don't even know what ectopic pregnancies are, who don't even care to know what an ectopic even the pregnancy women, is. even the Republican women in leadership, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Boebert, 
where are they? Where's Nikki Haley? Where are all the people that say they're the leaders of their party on this issue? They're falling in line behind this great win of the Dobbs decision. Well, and, you know, it's it's part of this fascist cosplay combined with the hatred of women. And that's why we've been talking about November. We've been calling it Rovember. You know, we say row, row, row your vote here on the Midas Touch podcast. Then <laughs> I'll repeat it right here on, on Legal AF that this is Rovember. And when you put people like DeSantis and they say, I'm going to be the person who's in charge of these decisions and I, you can't go to an emergency room, uh, women are going to take notice. America is going to take notice. And however, I could be an ally in that. I mean, it's when well, I see stuff like going on in Texas, it's just let me give you an example. And you'll talk about it more on the Brothers podcast. I'm sure you've, I mean, you may have already. You know, I do listen regularly, but sometimes I miss your uh, one or two episodes. Kansas. The reason things went well for progressives and Democrats related to abortion in Kansas is because I don't know if you caught this, Ben, the overwhelming number of people registering to vote for the first time in Kansas since Dobbs are women. And that's what has to happen from now till November for the you know, there there's new deadlines now because all the Republican state houses have limited the ability to register to vote because they don't want voters, because when you have voters, the Republicans often usually lose. So there are deadlines, but we're only in August and there's still time in every one of the states that matters for people and women to register to vote. And that is really important. I know that's what the Midas touch uh, podcast and the Midas brothers are, are all about. And I'm, I'm standing right behind you. Let's talk about what's going on in Fulton County with Governor Brian Kemp and Lindsey Graham and some additional individuals being asked to not really being asked, subpoenaed <laughs> to testify <laughs> before the uh, special grand jury. Pretty there. please. <laughs> exactly. I will talk about that. We got to also talk about this DOJ memo relating to uh, Bill Barr's decision not to prosecute or really Bill Barr's reverse engineering the decision with some of the most illogical. Uh, if you obstruct and you succeed, it could therefore not be obstruction is essentially, you know, what these idiots in Bill Barr wrote. But we'll we'll break that down um, before doing that. As you, have you gone to store.midastouch.com? Go to store.midastouch.com. Get the top Midas Touch gear. We're talking about we got new shirts, Rovember shirts. We got row, row, row your vote shirts. We got convict 45 shirts. We got the new dark Brandon sticker pack store.midastouch.com. You're part of the Midas Mighty movement. You're a legal AF. Forget the legal AF gear at store.midastouch.com. Popak, also our next partner is Athletic Greens. This program is brought to you by Athletic Greens. You may be wondering, Ben, what is this green drink that you've been drinking the entire podcast? It's Athletic Greens. It tastes great. It's a health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition really simple. And there's so much stressors in life, so it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients it needs to thrive, right? Busy schedules, poor sleep, exercise, the environment, work, stress, or just simply not eating enough of the right foods can lead us deficient in key nutritional areas. AG1 by Athletic Greens is the category-leading superfood product that brings comprehensive, convenient daily nutrition to everyone. And the key thing that you do here is I take this green powder, that's the Athletic Greens powder, I put it in this cup or whatever cup you like, I shake it up, 
I drink it and I'm good for the day. And it tastes great. It's cheaper than a cold brew habit. Um, and one tasty scoop, it has 75 vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced ingredients, including multivitamin, multi-mineral, probiotic, green superfoods, and blend in one convenient daily serving. And it's lifestyle friendly. So whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, it's for you. It contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals, or artificial anything while keeping it tasting good. So join the movement of athletes, life leads, moms, dads, but... I think most importantly, legal AFers, Midas Mighty members, and take that essential nutritional drink that is AG1. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune-supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Just visit athleticgreens.com slash legal AF today. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash legal AF Take control of your health. Give AG1 a try. I promise you, you will enjoy the way this tastes. It's going to make you feel really, really good. You can tag me in any Twitter posts. I'll retweet you with your AG1 post. But this is some really, really, really good stuff right here, and I'm proud to have them as a sponsor. Fulton County, Popak, I'm, I'm, I'm just tossing this one to you. I know I know you love your <laughs> Fawny Willis breakdown. I love my I love, I love my Fawny. And and not to um, undermine anything that we've said earlier in the podcast about um, the Espionage Act, the obstruction, criminal charges, and the criminal peril that Trump is looking at, I still believe the, the most um, uh, likely prosecution of Donald Trump is coming out of Fulton County, Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, I just, with, I, with it's Fawny definitely, the, it's, I got to disagree with you there. At this point, right. the most... The most likely one right now can, is, can, can, the, yeah, is, is out of the Mar-a-Lago search. Like, right, that's right. a home run. All right. But you're not letting me finish. So then so that it was great because you answered the question I didn't ask. <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that they're going to get the obstruction charge. I think they're going to get the obstruction charge, whether they go forward with it. I still think that the the thing that knocks Donald Trump into jail and off the ballot, I still believe, is Fawny Willis. Donald Garland has a whole set of political issues that concern him, rightly so, about prosecuting the president. Doesn't mean he didn't do the search warrant. Doesn't mean he's not going to, you know, do whatever the judges tell him to do in terms of releasing things and making sure that it's set up well for the next shot. Fawny Willis doesn't have those implications, doesn't have those hurdles. She's the special advisor to a special grand jury that's also overseen by Judge McBurney in Atlanta. And she's not as she is political. She's a democratically elected prosecutor. So I got a couple of predictions that you and I will have to tussle over. One, if you remember, seven months ago, we'll take that debate. That's all right. That's OK. Remember, I also said he'd be indicted by December. I still got time on that clock. That was seven months ago. And, the, and that you think that the, the more perilous place for Trump right now is that prosecution over the the good part is whoever loses wins. It just means that Trump got prosecuted. I really oh, don't care at the end. Make your point and then I don't really me, I don't really do care with, with you. Yeah. I am a hundred percent confident the most likely one uh, is now based on the search warrant. But, but wait a minute, what are you what are you trying to say? You think the most like you think that Fawny Willis isn't gonna get an indictment of Donald Trump? I think that the more likely easier grand slam is going to be 
the uh, criminal statute cited as the probable cause for the search yeah. warrant. But to be clear, I'm not debating you with that. I'm not saying I want to be clear. I'm not saying that's not a great case, as you saw from the, my commentary, my color commentary on your presentation. You think funny earlier. I think the more perilous place for Trump to be is in the Fawny Willis prosecution. He's going to yeah, lose dis- on I the Department of that. Yeah, I know, that, I know, I know you do, right? I know you do, but we don't have to keep debating it. You're not going to convince me, and I'm not going to convince you. So I'm going to try but, to convince you, but make your point. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're not. So let, let's go to let's go to Fawny Willis. Fawny in Fawny Willis, we have in her prosecution, we have at least two phone calls by Donald Trump himself, as just to remind everybody. One of them to Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, and his Attorney General. Not only telling them, help me find the 17,000 votes, but if you don't do it, you're looking at criminal peril. So that is the interference with election, direct evidence of the president making the phone call. He also made another phone call to Brian Kemp, the governor. We'll talk about Brian Kemp's efforts to avoid testimony to the grand jury in, in Georgia. So here I've got direct evidence of Trump's participation in what is coming out to be a conspiracy to commit election fraud in the state of Georgia. In the Department of Justice case, which we'll talk about, mainly negotiations with his lawyers. But here I got a a clear line of sight right to Trump. Governor Kemp, who's in a political dogfight of his own against Stacey Abrams in, in Georgia, would rather not testify. He offered first to voluntarily testify about the conversation he had with Donald Trump, this interference conversation he had with Donald Trump and do it in a in a voluntary setting of coming in and giving testimony. But the negotiations broke down between the Kemp team and the Fawny Willis team over a number of things like Kemp wanted the questions in advance. Fawny Willis said no. Kemp wanted the documents in advance. Fawny Willis said no. Kemp wanted all the topics in advance. Fawny Willis said no. You come in as if you were coming into the grand jury where we tell you the, at, at the moment that you come in for a grand jury what the topics are that we're going to discuss, and you sit down and talk to my team, we'll give you that courtesy, but that's the only courtesy we're going to give you. When that fell apart and they started demanding uh, questions so they'd be prepared, Fawny ran to uh, the her boss in this case, which is Judge McBurney, who we've talked about in the past, and said, I need authorization to bring in Governor Kemp. And Governor Kemp filed papers to argue under sovereign immunity, I'm the governor. I don't get to, I don't have to testify. And yeah, all these sovereign other... immunity is I don't get to be sued. Right. So she points yeah, out, right. OK, we're not suing you. We're just trying to ask you questions, yeah, buddy. Right. And then he said, oh, and I, they should be able to get all of uh, I should know the questions in advance and all. And it, all right. So McBurney had a couple of things on the docket on Thursday. One of them was Kemp's motion. And the other was a bunch of motions by the fake electors in Georgia to disqualify Fawny Willis again, because, you know, whenever they get a chance to take a shot at Fawny, they do it. The judge on the fake electors motion said, I'm not I'm not disqualifying Fawny Willis. And in a footnote, he said, I don't understand. It eludes me the argument that you're making that because she's a Democrat and you're a Republican and all the targets of her investigation are Republicans, that that makes this a political witch hunt. Of course, all the targets 
of this investigation and the grand jury's focus are Republicans. They're the ones that are alleged to have attempted to do the fake elector scandal uh, scheme and to have interfered with the election process. It's not the Democrats under this scenario. So, of course, she's of one party and you're of another. But that doesn't mean this is a political witch hunt motion to motion to disqualify denied on Kemp. He came back and said everything that Fawny Willis has asked for in her office is completely legitimate under a grand jury process. Witnesses to a grand jury do not get in advance the questions. Witnesses to a grand jury do not know the topics until they're sitting in the seat or just moments before. And as the judge McBurney said, it's a tried and true formula that's worked for grand juries in the state for years. And we're not going to uh, we're not going to change it. He took the ruling under advisement. He hasn't made his decision yet. We'll hear about it next week. And you know, I'll report about it at the end of the week. However, based on the questions that he asked and his temperament on the bench, Kemp is going to be testifying in front of that grand jury. Now, the other thing that came out, I don't know if you caught, Ben, that goes to the timing of the release of the report. You remember three or four episodes ago, we said that McBurney made it clear that he was not going to allow the special grand jury and Fawny Willis's work to be politicized by releasing it as an October surprise just before the November election. Mm -hmm. And if it got too close to the midterms, he was not going to release the report until after he made it clear now, almost in September, where we are. She is not far enough along in her in her investigation, even though she's done 30 plus witnesses to have the report ready from the grand jury anytime. So he's basically told the media and the public this report is not coming out until after the elections in November. So it's not going to be something that we can use in November. It's going to be something that we're going to find out about probably in December or January. And McBurney is signaling that already. So that's what you have there with uh, Brian Kemp trying to avoid uh, his yep. subpoena. Um, other developments as well. You have uh, reaching out to Phony Willis is reaching out to Mark Meadows, Sidney Powell. Um, I just got a message literally right before we started recording this of Lynn Wood. Um, so all oh. of those people have oh. been, yeah, have been approached. And uh, just so people know the procedure, if an individual does not live in the state of Georgia, you have to initiate kind of two concurrent proceedings, one in Georgia with this judge who's overseeing it to subpoena. And then you go to the state where the person resides, and then you have to get a local judge there in the jurisdiction where the person lives to order that they appear in a foreign or another state jurisdiction. Um, so that's just the process. So how do we know that you know she's looking to depose or bring Mark Meadows and Sidney Powell rather before the special grand jury? Well, we can see these cases being initiated. Yeah. in the different states. And so that's how we know well, she's and asked then, McBurney. She's asked McBurney for permission to go to the other states and he's granted it. And then, you know, Lindsey Graham, we've been talking about this kind of, you know, ping pong effort of Lindsey Graham not to appear. Lindsey Graham at first said, uh, based on the speech and debate clause, uh, which basically says that legislators, members of Congress, senators, uh, in connection with the work that they do as senators or Congress members, they can't be questioned anywhere other than their jobs as senators and Congress members, meaning you can't you can't investigate, you can't ask them questions. And they basically have an, an immunity as it relates to their legislative functions. And Lindsey Graham has maintained that when he tried to basically 
Brad Raffensperger's words, it felt like he was threatening Raffensperger and extorting Raffensperger to change vote tallies. Lindsey Graham's response is, no, I was just fact finding about the electoral process. Sure, I'm a South Carolina senator, but I just wanted to know your Georgia process. And when I was telling you to overturn the actual will of the people, that was just (laughs) part of my legislative functions just to see, you know, could you do it? Could you not do it? I'm saying it in that tone, but that's actually what Lindsey Graham is arguing. And that speech and debate clause argument is a very powerful argument, unfortunately, for in this case, because the, the law has given a lot of deference that our senators and members of Congress are not supposed to abuse it and be complete criminals and do what Lindsey Graham, you know, apparently, you know, did in this situation. So Lindsey Graham appealed the district court judge's ruling. The district court judge, remember, Lindsey Graham filed a case outside of those state court proceedings. He filed a federal case. First, he filed it in South Carolina, and it, then it got moved to the district court in Georgia. And Lindsey Graham filed for an injunction. Stop. I, I'm not, I don't want to testify. Judge, make it stop. And there the judge said, you know, maybe there's a speech and debate clause with respect to this phone call that you may have had with Raffensperger, but clearly there's all this other conduct which would not be legislative activity. Like if you spoke to Trump about, you know, campaign issues, how would that be legislative activity? You know, with, when you have conversations with Trump about overturning the election, and Lindsey Graham then appealed the district court's finding to the 11th Circuit, which is where George is based. The 11th Circuit said that the federal judge needed to make a broader inquiry to Lindsey Graham about what other areas of questioning um, he's concerned about and then ask Bonnie Willis what areas of questioning that she um, would want to get into. And Lindsey Graham's response basically is literally you can't ask me any question. Anything I would have done, whether it's talk to Trump or whoever, was under speech and debate clause is the argument. What a loser argument. But he's making that argument. We'll see what the 11th Circuit does. But that was the recent filing uh, by Lindsey Graham. I want to turn to this uh, Bill Barr memo, but I do. I said I was going to debate you a little bit. And it's a friendly, respectful debate that I want to have. I'm ready for it. Let's do it. Let me tell you why I believe, though, that Trump is in far greater peril in the Mar-a-Lago search warrant investigation. And it relates to what I just said about Lindsey Graham, right? As it relates to state versus federal officials, uh, Lindsey Graham cites the speech and debate clause. In a any investigation into Trump arising out of a local district attorney like Fawny Willis, regardless of the merits of the case, one of the ways Trump is going to delay it and delay it for quite some time is on a separation of powers argument. Can a state DA prosecute a president of the United States, former president? of the United States. And that question is enough of a novel question where Trump will be able to, I think, unfortunately, I'm just giving you the law, Mm -hmm. what I think the law is, you know, if you want to abuse it, if you have a criminal ex-president who wants to take advantage of it, to delay it saying, look, I'm the former president, this local DA has no authority, and that will work its way up to the Supreme Court and take a lot of time. That's number one. Number two, as between Fawny Willis and Merrick Garland, and who is a more seasoned prosecutor um, in terms of Donald Trump being in peril. It comes from Merrick Garland by far, someone who's been literally the top prosecutor like 
ever, like in our in our government structure. Bonnie Willis, we've already seen, had a slight misstep with respect to the political fundraiser she lent her name to. It didn't have any significant impact. It was related to one of the potential people she was looking to subpoena where she was disqualified from, um, where she was supporting his political opponent. But that was a misstep that Barrett Garland wouldn't make. And then I call it the Al Capone effect, right? Like someone like Al Capone doesn't often get convicted of the murder. Um, and that's just the way mafia style prosecutions happen. You get you get convicted of the tax fraud. The other acts that lead you to be a murderer is the acts that ultimately, you know, lead to your you know imprisonment. And so to me here, as it relates to the insurrection, which was right in our face. Clearly, Donald Trump should be prosecuted for the insurrection. He inspired it. He caused it. He made it happen. We know how involved he was in the conspiracy behind it. We know he was involved in the obstruction um, of the certification results. We've seen January 6th. But because he could raise novel issues, no one's ever prosecuted that statute before. We have ample experience, Espionage Act prosecutions, right? Ample obstruction prosecutions, ample mutilation concealment prosecutions. And so they're intertwined, in my view, because the reason Trump hid these confidential informations is actually the same reason that he led an insurrection. He's a traitor. He's a traitor to the country. That's why he led the insurrection. And that's why he's keeping these confidential informations. So to me, it's intertwined. But to get Trump, the case, the the case that's imperiling him, the case that is so obvious, it's so clear cut because you read the affidavit. And as you talked about earlier, the obstruction case is already made. We see it. And the fact that the return, they got top secret, sensitive, compartmented information. That's the case. Open and shut. You don't need as a prosecutor to make any more detailed arguments than he claimed that he gave it back. He didn't give it back. We told him to lock the room. He didn't lock the room. You know, he he told us we couldn't access the documents. They, they took the documents all over the place. He shouldn't have had the documents in the first place. Guilty. That's all you have to show the jury. And it's imminent. The search warrant. They now have these records. You don't have to go through, you know, with Fawny Willis. Governor Kemp's going to have to come. Maybe they order Governor Kemp to come back next year. You know, that's why I think imminent peril. I have no doubt it's the Mar-a-Lago search warrant. That's brief, my debate. Popeye. Brief, brief rebuttal, ladies and gentlemen of the podcast. <laughs> I'll make I'll make it brief. The times when the Records Act and the retention of national defense documents have been prosecuted in the past result in an exit ramp that's usually less than a felony and with very little time on the clock. Petraeus, prosecuted under a similar but not exactly overlapping set of statutes, got like a misdemeanor and a slap on the wrist. Sandy Berger, former uh, Clinton advisor, White House advisor, who'd taken a document with him, also did. They're going to prosecute him for this document retention issue. We keep talking about the highest level, the compromise of national defense and national security for the country. And I don't want to I don't want to undermine that or belittle that. But at the end of the day, the, the great weight of the United States government. If it decides to prosecute this president based on where we are right now, and just to tell everybody, just because the subpoena process has gone terrible for Trump doesn't mean that the ultimate indictment and defense will go as bad likely can. But it, but we're looking at the very, very beginning of the movie, not the end to see the this payoff. Funny Willis, on the other hand, doesn't have the problems that Merrick Garland has in terms of political inhibitions 
uh, to stop her prosecution. She's already got 30 witnesses who have already testified to the grand jury. That's led to the identification of at least one target in Rudy Giuliani. He the closest to the inner circle of Trump. There is a Georgia racketeering and uh, racketeering statute that's similar to the federal RICO, which would bring in Trump under a conspiracy statute. And unlike what's happened at Mar-a-Lago, even though it's been right under his nose, in his bedroom, in his safe, in his pool house, wherever, there's very little direct evidence that's been disclosed as of yet, other than comments I've heard about Trump saying, mine, 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 when it relates to the documents, that puts him with the criminal intent necessary for the prosecution. Lawyers are always involved, because as to paraphrase the Godfather, you know, there's a lot of buffers between Donald Trump and the crime. He has a lot of buffers around him. He gets lawyers to sign affidavits and declarations under penalty of perjury and criminal prosecution that all of the documents that were top secret or classified have been turned over. He had that signed in June by the guy. So there is a there's a layer of buffers between him, which does have an impact, as Karen has outlined in a prior podcast on Wednesday, the ability to bring the criminal case. Fawny Willis has none of that because she's got at least two phone calls directly by Trump to try to interfere with the election. So I don't want to say it's a lower hurdle for her. It isn't. And I agree with you that whether you call it separation of powers or you talk about this, this interplay between uh, uh, the executive, the highest person in the executive branch and a, and a lower level local prosecutor. But I think that actually plays in her favor because she's not impacted at all by any of these at least for the prosecution standpoint, any of these issues, I don't think the if she indicts him, he's going to move to dismiss. She's going to it's probably not going to get dismissed. I'm not sure until he's criminally prosecuted and maybe indicted and then prosecuted. Does he have a grounds for appeal? So does he get prosecuted between now and the? Where is he more likely to get prosecuted for a major felony between now and the time of him running for office or being up as the candidate for the Republican Party? I'm still banking on Fawny Willis, but I would I'm fine if it's if it's yours. I just think the one that is that could put the guy in jail and, and have not the Department of Justice cutting the deal on a misdemeanor and a slap on the wrist. Is Fawny Willis. Yes. They're not cutting a deal for a misdemeanor. <laughs> it's very, very different than the Petraeus situation. Petraeus is like uh, not even, you know, not even close. Well, wait a minute. That was eight binders of that was eight binders of confidential and top secret information he turned over to his lover so she could put in a book. So it wasn't nothing. Well, I'm not I'm not saying it's nothing, but yeah. it's not the top secret, sensitive, compartmented mm, nuclear information. <laughs> new potentially nuclear information <laughs> information you know and but we, we will we will see that's but why i love this podcast sometimes i disagree with karen and i disagree on occasion you and i disagree on occasion but you know what you know what there's no loser because democracy wins i'm not saying he'll look i'm not here saying he's not getting prosecuted anywhere and it's a failure to manage expectations i want to prosecute it i think these are good cases in both jurisdictions i just kind of side lean towards funny People will uh, make a vote on that. And so let's talk, Popak, though, about this uh, DOJ releasing the memo relating to Barr's decision not to prosecute Trump. And uh, why is it being released now? What 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 what's its origin about being released now? And came from a public records request, right, that finally worked its way up. And uh, what are we what are we learning here and, and what does it relate to? Popak? 
So people might have forgotten this, but back in March, um, we have a judge in the in D.C. She was actually shortlisted at one point for the Supreme Court, Amy Berman Jackson, who had before her a, a, a petition or a lawsuit to have the memo that Barr claimed he used to make the decision or impacted his decision not to prosecute Donald Trump after the Mueller report was delivered to him. So everybody remember this. Mueller did a year and a half or two year investigation, spent millions of dollars of taxpayer dollars and then, you know, delivered the findings, both the Congress and in a written report in volumes, volume one, volume two, looking at things like whether Trump and his people were involved with the Russians um, concerning obstruction, the election and different things like that. When the one thing that the big failure, there were many of the Mueller report and of Mueller and his approach in general is that he he decided that it would be better for the actual sitting attorney general, in this case, Bill Barr, to make the decision without a recommendation at all. So he Mueller and his team wrote about, you know, hundreds of pages of detailed analysis of the evidence that had been collected and the witnesses that had been spoken to and the outline of all of the crimes that potentially could have been charged but didn't have a section at the end, the final section saying recommendations from the special or independent counsel. And even though, you know, it w- the word on the street was that Mueller thought there was a, there was more than enough evidence to prosecute Donald Trump. Even then, he decided because he's like a gentleman lawyer that he'd let Bill Barr make the decision. Well, <laughs> Bill Barr was a political hack, um, decided that he would review the Mueller report get a recommendation from his people, but that he'd already made the decision that he was not going to prosecute Donald Trump. And so this memo that he either relied on or didn't rely on, it was either pre-decisional or decisional, or it went to the discretion to prosecute, or it didn't go to the discretion to prosecute. People wanted to see the memo. And the Justice Department, first under Barr, but then under Merrick Garland. You know, sometimes you and I talk about positions that Merrick Garland's Department of Justice has had to take for broader principles for, for the future of the department, even if they didn't necessarily agree with it from a political standpoint, that sometimes puts them at odds with what you and I and our listeners and followers want that department to do. And here they sided with, the, with Barr and they fought against the release of the memo with the um, with the uh, judge, and they made representations to the judge about what they thought the memo was or what the memo wasn't. The judge thought she had been misled when she saw the memo, you know, what we call an in-camera review from the Department of Justice, and ordered them to um, to re- to uh, disclose it to the media and to the public in general because it 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 completes the story of what happened. Also, the evidence that Barr has testified and given that he made the decision not to prosecute, not in reliance on the memo at all. So the judge was like, the memo was coming out. They took an appeal. The Department of Justice with Merrick Garland took an appeal to the the D.C. Circuit, the three judge panel of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And that panel sided with Judge Jackson and against the Department of Justice and ordered the the, the release of this memo. And now we get to see that the people that were working under Barr in reviewing these volumes of Mueller report made the decision that they did not believe that there was enough evidence to convict 
this president of the things that were listed in the um, in the Mueller report, understanding that all of these people were Republicans. They now work for Trump. They now work for Barr. That's what happens, Mueller, when you leave it to the next administration and the wrong party to make a decision about its president. You should have made a series of recommendations which may have tied Barr's hands and forced his hands to bring the indictment. But the interesting thing about all this is, is Barr is on record as saying he didn't really rely on the memo at all. He had already made the decision, from a, which is back to what I was saying earlier, made a decision that he was not going to prosecute a president. Paul Puck, that's a great summary there. I don't think I even have anything to add. You nailed the summary of, of, <laughs> of, of, of what took place there. But I do want to add this. Everybody, um, go check out store.midastouch.com to check out all the Midas Touch gear. Get your Rovember shirts now, your Convict 45 shirts. Get your Row, 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 Your Vote shirts. So many, so much great gear and merch and stickers and all the best stuff at the Midas Touch merch store. Get your Legal AF merch as well at store.midastouch.com. Michael Popak, always the best time of the week, spending it with you, talking about the most consequential legal news of the week. And I kind of feel like if you viewed Legal AF episodically, you know, we, we <laughs> told everyone that uh, winter is coming, if you will, right? Uh, and justice is coming. We just said... Here's how it happens. Here are the dynamics behind the scenes. And it doesn't mean sometimes, you know, one investigation doesn't move as fast as you think or something else happens. There's a lot of variables at play, but we can track the movements of these things the same way, you know, almost like a storm tracker tracks the hurricane coming. You can kind of see the patterns. You see where they're going. It doesn't always mean the hurricane's going to go where it's tracking. But you can definitely yeah, you get the cone, you get the you get the cones, you get the little patterns. Exactly. Right? You know, that's what we do here on Legal yeah. AF. We break it down in far more detail than uh, anywhere else. I think that's out there. Thanks for making us the top legal podcast and the top legal podcast on YouTube by far. Um, make sure you hit the subscribe button, will you hit subscribe on YouTube? And for all of the uh, YouTube listeners, please do us a favor. Big favor. Subscribe on audio right now, wherever you get your audio podcasts, whether that's on Apple or Spotify or Google podcast or whatever your app you use, go hit subscribe there and play these podcasts on audio. Also, one, you can get that information. You better understand it if you listen to it twice. It also helps with the algorithm and keeps us in top position in audio as well. And for all the audio listeners, go check us out on YouTube, please. Um, go subscribe on the YouTube channel, really the fastest growing YouTube channel out there right now for independent media. Thanks to you. This is a movement. This is a family. You know, it's not just we're a network. I, I said this the other day, Popak. I read the comments and there was one person said, can you stop saying that Midas Touch is the <laughs> fastest growing network? Because it makes it feel like y'all are some like like it makes it feel too rigid. Like we're a family. This is what the person said in the comment. I feel like when I watch Legal AF, I feel like when I watch your videos on YouTube, that this is that this is a family. And and that person was right. You know, Midas Touch Legal AF, it's a movement. It, it, we're different than just media company. You know, this is organic. This is because of you. You know, we react, we respond to what you want. Um, and we try to deliver this together. Um, and this community is what's growing. And that's why I love spending these weekends with everybody too, to yeah. see new members of the community, to see some of the members who were there from day one, 
to see them meeting and exchanging ideas like that fills my heart yeah i wouldn't contribute my saturdays and wednesdays because we have the midweek edition to just a stiff media network i do it because of my commitment to you and your brothers to what you're accomplishing and to the growing loyal family members and i look at all the chat and i look at all the tweets and i respond to all those too and i wouldn't do that if i was just getting paid by cnn to do some weekly commentary cnn at this point is pretty much garbage anyway thank you everybody (laughs) for watching this episode of legal af ben micellis and michael popak breaking down the most consequential legal news we'll see you next time on legal af shout out to the midas mighty